Living Historian. So what we're going to do today is just to finish off having a look at issue one here. We're going to first of all discuss the attempts to strengthen Tsarism from 1905 to 1914. Then we're going to have a look at the First World War and Russia's attempts in it. Have a look at the disastrous leadership of Tsar Nicholas II at the front lines, which you should have seen when it came to the docu drama series uh, The Last Hour on Netflix and um, it will end that of issue one but it's also a great way to start issue two next week when we start to have a look at the February Revolution. So today particularly when we're having a look at the, at the attempts to strengthen Tsarism from 1905 to 1914 it's a bit like the Empire Strikes Back that we're going to have a look in terms of seeing what the October Manifesto and the elected Duma brought to political reform how many Russians were given more rights at the same time the army, the Okara and other groups are used to suppress revolutionary groups. So there is some elements here of shifting of democratic rights but at the same time as well. We have suppression and this is something that we're going to see when it comes to the fundamental laws in particular. So we're going to have a look at suppression of political opposition, Stolpin's economic reforms, the fundamental laws, reasserting Tsar's part after 1945, the Duma and that of the October Manifesto as well. So we've got plenty here to have a look at in terms of analysing the role of the Tsar and how it is that Russia is then going to be helped into sliding towards a revolution in 1917 and the Tsar, he has contributed to this with a series of misjudged actions as well as policies as well. So let's just have a look here at Peter Stolfin. So we had a look at how the necktie, the noose, is referred to as the Stolfin's necktie because of just the amount of oppression that is taking place in Russia. But Peter Stolfin dominated the Russian government from July 1906 when he became Prime Minister until his assassination in 1911. He first came to notice as a provincial governor in Sartov dominant to his rigorous suppression of peasant unrest. As St. Petersburg outsider, he was supported and appointed Minister of the Interior and soon after Prime Minister, although he kept his former post as well. He thus wielded a considerable amount of power in that of Russian society. Stolman was a strong supporter of the autocracy and the opponent of the revolution and disorder. He set up field court marshals in 1906 to crush peasant uprisings, Stolpin's neckties, the hangman's noose, that over thousands of peasants and nearly 60,000 political detainees were executed or sent into exile or penal servitude in Stolpin's carriages, the railway cars. So there he is, he's got two nicknames there for neckties, also in terms of the carriages, real cars as well. He was appointed by an utterly beholden to him. The Tsar was never attempted to build a political base on his own. However, liquid before him, he also believed that reform was essential to solve Russia's problems. He believed that the industrial progress alone was not sufficient to take Russia forward and gave his attention to agriculture. He had two primary objectives. First of all, to feed the rapidly growing population and avoid the cycle of famine and revolt, which was present in 1905, to create a strong conservative peasantry that would support the regime as well. And just in terms of like viewpoints on Stolfin, uh, Sir, Nicholas, Nick, uh, sorry, Sir, Sir Arthur Nicholson, the British ambassador to St. Petersburg, was a distinguished diplomat who said that uh, Stolfin was the most notable figure in Europe. Dominic Levin describes him as a radiating vigour, forcefulness and self-confidence, with a talent for acting, 
oratory and public relations were among senior officials. According to historian Richard Pipes, Stofan stood head and shoulders above his immediate predecessors and successors and he combined a vision of the desirable with a sense of the possible. He was a rare blend of statesman and politician. With his host's competitor was a brilliant and realistic politician, but a father rather than leader and something of an opportunist. So Stolpin here is virtually the only Prime Minister of the constitutional decade to see the Duma as a partner in building a strong Russia. He did not consider what was limiting the monarch's authority, but rather given it a broader social base. In particular, he developed an understanding with the Octoberist, the more conservative liberals, which allowed him to push through his reforms. His success suggested the possibility of a working relationship between the government and elected assembly, yet he was the only one really prepared to work with on its terms. So when the second Duma would not do his bidding, he changed the electoral system drastically to create one he had hoped would be much more amenable. Some of the Liberals called this as Stolpen's coup d'etat. When he was having trouble getting measures through, he cynically used Article 87 of the Fundamental Laws, which allowed him to pass emergency powers by decree when the Duma was not sitting. So you can see a man here that, you know, is described to be a diplomat, uh, a notable figure, someone who was a, a rare blend of statesman and politician. But there is this backbone of autocracy. Now, is this part of his own will or in terms of that of helping to beholden to that Tsar Nicholas II, who you know is a strong believer and advocate of autocracy here as well? But it does speak volumes when things and when this working relationship between that of him and the Duma is not working, that he changes the electoral system. He also looks at using uh, emergency powers as well, something that you know, you would know from having a look at Hitler and Nazi Germany when we have Article 48 is used as emergency powers, but then that article is subsequently abused. So you can see how things are more treated like tick box exercises. So in the end, it was the last point that brought him down. He wanted to introduce the semester in the Western provinces to make local government more democratic. However, the upper chamber in the Duma supports, opposed this as landlords feared that they would lose their authority. And there you go, there is a man who is actually trying to look at the number, we've had a look at the semesto and the semesta, the idea that we have this local body that's looking at health, social care, um, trying to work things on a smaller base. And here he is, he recognises that, and that's something that he wants to bring about, and how landlords are staunchly opposed to him. So you can see that there is qualities which he is looking for in terms of pushing forward for form. In March 1911, he was persuaded the Tsar to suspend both chambers of the Duma to allow him to force this measure through then by that of decree. This alienated both the houses of the Duma, including the majority of the Octoberists, who therefore supported him. The left condemned Stolpen for his policy of repression, while the right considered that his dangerous reform policies undermined the principles of autocracy, or in the case of land reforms, the power of the gentry in the countryside. He proposed a series of reforms to extend civil rights, reform local government and local justice and improve education. In the event, he was only able to implement his programme of Argarian reform using emergency laws. The enmity of which confronted him from all sides demonstrated the difficulty of taking a middle road in Russia. By 1911, his star was waning and he was not, and he was not being assassinated, but it was likely that he would have been dismissed. So particularly note that he is becoming somewhat unpopular. So without this assassination that took place in 1911, could we have seen him dismissed from power? 
Um, so actually on the 1st of September 1911, uh, Stolpe went to the opera in Kiev, which the Tsar Nicholas was also present. And during the interval, a young man, a socialist revolutionary, also, uh, but also a police informer, came up to him and shot him twice. It was reported that Stolpe turned to the Tsar and made a sign of the cross saying, I am happy to die for the Tsar. It took him five days to do so. It was the 18th attempt on his life. So 18 um, attempts were made on his life there. So there's someone there that the Tsar has lost. Could he possibly um, had saved Russia from falling into that of the February Revolution? It's one of those things that we'll never know. Stolpen was a man of contradictions. On one hand, he supported the autocracy using fierce and relentless repression to deal with his dissonance. On the other, he was championing reform. In 1906, he commented to Bernard Pears, a British historian, I am fighting on two fronts. I am fighting against revolution, but also for reform. You may want to say such a position is beyond human strength, and you may be right. He wanted citizens to participate in political life and build a state based on the rule of law. However, some of his actions contradicted this, particularly his field court marshals, his coup d'etat, and his use of Article 87. Perhaps this expressed the problems of trying to modernise Russia within a framework of an autocracy. Whether Stolpen could have saved Tsarism is a matter for conjunction, but it's probably fair to say that he was the Tsar's last best hope. Historian Abraham Asher argues that he had a vision for the transformation of Russia and this reform proposals were more feasible and more likely to lead Russia out of the abyss than any other. Other historians, however, would maintain that there was no hope of reforming the archaic regime and he was bound to fail. But in failing to support Stolven, Nicholas showed his stubborn opposition to reform. After Stolven, he made a series of disastrous appointments to the government, best inefficient, at worst incompetent. So this just have we look here at um, the constitutional experiment uh, that takes place. So particularly here in terms of the October Manifesto and the fundamental laws. So Sergei Witt, who we've come across before, was an influential policymaker. He persuaded the Tsar to pass his October Manifesto, issued in 1905, a promised significant political reform, although most of these promises were open to interpretation. So three key things here to have a look at. So the first one, a Duma elected national parliament was to be set up. No law was to be passed unless approved by the Duma. Censorship would be loosened and more freedom of speech encouraged. And the people would have more rights to gather together for discussions and meetings. So particularly, you can see from that, like it's really offering a chance for political change. You might note, well, it says there for like the first point that you've mentioned that, you know, it's all about... Um, looking at sort of how nothing can be improved without the Duma, but doesn't really actually say if the Duma can make any laws. So the setting up of the elected Duma was a major step towards some sort of um, constitutional government, you could say. But the question that we need to ask ourselves, was the Tsar willing to take up this constitutional challenge? The initial signs for it aren't particularly good. And we've had a look at, particularly in our last podcast, about the fundamental laws that were issued in April 1906 and one such one really shows autocracy is still on the ascendancy. It notes that the sovereign empire possesses the initiative in all legislative matters. The sovereign empire ratifies the laws, that no laws come into force without his approval. So the Duma here, it can pass it, but they can actually not really enact their own laws. 
It seems that the Duma was to have the royal power to initiate or enact legislation in. And this was confirmed when it was announced that they would be a um, second chamber in the state council with equal powers to that of the Duma. Half of the state's members would be chosen by the Tsar. So there you go. The idea that we're going back into those that are in the close circle then of the Tsar. Only if both agreed to a legislative proposal would it go forward to the Tsar's approval. Also, Article 87 of the laws gave the Tsar the right to, um, in exceptional circumstances, to pass his own laws without consulting the Duma at all. The Tsar also retained control of the military, foreign policy and appointment of ministers. To many liberals, it seemed that the Tsar reneged on his promises then in October. The elections for the Duma employed a complicated system of electoral colleges designated to represent the different social classes. It was profoundly weighted towards the upper classes. For instance, 2,000 landowners were represented by one deputy and 90,000 workers were represented by one deputy. Despite this, the elections returned and the cadets was the largest party and therefore a significant representative of the left, despite the fact that the revolutionary parties had boycotted the elections. The home of the Duma was also the Turritide Palace. So I'm just taking a note here just to have a look at the reaction of this um, manifesto that, you know, it's quite varied. Uh, the Liberals are satisfied with the level of reform in the manifesto, the cadets, um, the rich peasants. They want reform to go further. Uh, they want to have a written constitution and guarantees of a constituent uh, assembly. The social revolutionaries are very critical of the manifesto, as are the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. It doesn't really give any power at all to the peasants or the workers. So really then, uh, as a response of 1905 revolution, it, it succeeds the October manifesto in dividing opposition. You know, some are happy, some aren't happy. So because of this division, then it means that the Tsar's grip on power now is even more secure. So particularly here, um, just to have a note there, because we just mentioned the cadets. So the cadets uh, are formed in 1905 before the October Manifesto was signed. They're also known as the Constitutional Democrats. Uh, there are, they were not a liberal party in a Western sense. They saw themselves as a party of popular freedom and saw themselves as a national party, not a class party. Although they did support, um, draw many supporters from the liberal intelligence academics, lawyers, progressive employers, doctors and Zemesto employees. The leaders of the cadets was Paul Milkloff, a professor of history. He wanted a democratically elected assembly, full civil rights for all citizens and an end of censorship, recognition of trade unions and free education. There were tensions in the party between the right and also support the monarchy and those of the left who wanted Russia to be turned into a republic. So there you have a division actually within a party as well. Another group that is emerging, a new Liberal Party, is that of the Octoberists, who took their name from the October Manifesto. And they saw as a definitive statement of reform, it should go no further, actually. They were more conservative than the cadets, and they did not want a constitutional government. They saw the Tsar um, to exercise strong government, and there were nationalists who support the maintenance of the Russian Empire. They were a more association of different groups rather than a defined political party. The support came from industrious landowners and those who took commercial interest. Two leading members were Mikolai Renko, a powerful landowner, and Alexander Gerevko, a factory owner. So the first and the second Dumas here. So when the first Duma met in April 1906, 
there was immense hostility towards the Tsar. And this is something that is quoted from a historian, Lionel Kufkin, in Russia and Revolution. He goes on to say, on the first Duma, the Duma was solely opened by the Tsar in the throne room of the Winter Palace. Had its walls ever enclosed such a strange scene, one minister onlooker wondered to himself. To the other side stood the uniformed members of the Imperial Council and the Tsar's retinue, the leaders of court livery bedecked with pearls and diamonds. To the other stood the members of the Duma dressed overwhelmingly in the garb of workers and peasants. Prominent amongst the latter stood a tall workman named Ilko, who observed the throne and those with assertive and insolent air. So threatening was the men, already one minister turned to his neighbour whispering, I have the feeling that this might die might throw a bomb. The Dowager Empress also herself surrounded by enemies, so much did seem to reflect on the commonsical hatred for us all she convinced. Right wing members were openly proctive, they told the English liberal Bernard Payers that aimed at the dissolution of the contournment of the franchise. Scruton introduced a cleverly worded mock bill for the socialisation of all brains and once began a speech by asking the socialist revolutionaries if any of them happened to have a bomb in his pocket. On the other hand, ministers speaking the Duma were interrupted by the list, sometimes at unsatisfactory answers to abuses of official or police authority. A general bill ran through the house when an old social revolutionary peasant, Kerko, with flaming eyes and shaggy hair and a beard, interfered in a debate and touched the rights of his property. We know about your property, he said. We were your property. My uncle was exchanged for a greyhound. So you can see two polar opposites, rich and poor, the uh, higher echelons of society with those that are the lowest, but those are actually the majority. And you really get a sense here in terms of the tension that is in the air. There's even the Dowager Duchess, uh, Nicholas II's mother, commented upon about how you can see the incomprehensible hatred for us all. The deputies demanded the power of the Dumas that she increase and that the election should be universal and secret. They also wanted guarantees of certain freedoms, such as speech and assembly. There were followed two months of bitter disagreement. The Tsar, horrified with the hostility and the lack of respect, dissolved the Duma. It was reported, he said, curse the Duma, it's all wit's doing. 200 cadets and two deputies went to Wehrberg in Finland from where they urged the Russian people not to pay their taxes. Later they were arrested and disbarred from re-election. In the elections for the second Duma, which met in February 1907, the cadets and the moderates lost to the increased representation of the left. There were over 200 left-wing deputies, partly because of the revolutionary parties that ended their boycott. It was much more radical than the first Duma and was called the Duma of National Anger. The second Duma was ravened with division and deputies made fierce attacks on the government. As a result, it lasted only three months. So, what you need to consider is how these early Dumas, in the context of the times, make sense of what was going on and the regime's response. Russia is still very unsettled by 1906, so this adds to the hostility and the tension there. There's a major upsurge in peasant disturbances and, to a lesser degree, industrial unrest among the workers. Also, 141 mutinies took place in the armed forces from May to July 1906. What was worrying for the regime, which was more was political. The peasants were aware of the first Duma and set in large numbers of petitions. The cadets felt there was a chance of winning concessions on key issues and were pitting themselves against the government. After the first Duma, the government cracked down hard on the cadets, closing down their offices and dismissing members of the party from the government service. 
However, the peasants and workers had confidence and great hopes for the second Duma and flocked to the polls in large numbers. In St. Petersburg, over 70% of eligible voters voted. So I just have a wee recap there. So we have the first Duma that um, is opened up for a duration here of two months, April to June 1906. In terms of its representation of the 478 seats, the cadets with 185, the Trukoviks, the left-wing liberists here, uh, are with 94 and were dominant within the moderate business interests. Now, the Trukovics here, our labour group, was a loose grouping with the main aim was looking at land reform. And since the social revolutionaries had boycotted the elections, it was a party for the peasant deputies. So that is just who they are. 112 were non-partisans, generally sympathetic to the liberals. The main offence and achievements are discussed at this, so deputies demanded increased power. Little in practice achieved through there was fierce debates on a range of issues such as civil rights, amnesty for political prisoners and land ownership, and the Tsar claimed the Duma unworkable, and then he dissolved it. The second Duma uh, lasts double the period of time for four months between February and June 1907. The number of cadets was halved and to under 100, but they were still quite significant. The Trubiks were a largest group of 104. Also, there was 47 Mesheviks, 37 social revolutionaries who joined the elections for the first time. In all, there was over 200 deputies on the left. The national parties had 93 deputies. However, the right-wing groupings also increased their number of over 60 deputies from various factions. The Octobers had increased their number to 44. So what was the main events and achievements? Well, the left and right-wing deputies attacked each other, debates frequently ending in brawls. Left-wing deputies made fierce attacks on Stolten and his land reforms. The Duma cooperated with the government over famine relief. The government claimed Mesheviks and social revolutionaries deputies were subversive amid scenes of disorder and the Duma again is dissolved for the second time. So leading on here to the third and fourth Dumas. So for the third and fourth Dumas, Stolpen decided to change the electoral system to favour the upper and the propertyed classes. The peasants and workers were virtually excluded and the non-Russian national groups were much reduced. As a result, the Octoberists and right-wing parties uh, were predominated. Even so, the Third Duma was not subversive and questioned the government hard, particularly on the Duma and state finances. Stolpen was able to work with more moderate centre parties to achieve progress in his social and economic reforms. However, this time he found it was the right-wing groups and nationalists who tried to put a break on his reforms, probably with the support of the Tsar. At least it showed the Duma could work positively with the government and did provide a training ground for constitutionalism. The fourth Duma was interrupted by the outbreak of the First World War and met intermittently during the war. Before the war, it attempted some reform of the Orthodox Church and supported the law of 1908, providing for universal education, but progress was slow. It was also critical of the government's handling on increasing social unrest, especially the Lena Goldfields massacre, which we'll look at shortly. On the outbreak of the war, the Duma threw itself behind the Tsar and the national war effort. It agreed to suspend itself for the duration of the war. However, when it became apparent that the government was managing the war very badly, the Duma pressured the Tsar into calling it into July 1915. It offered the Tsar one last opportunity to agree on limited constitutional government, as we shall see shortly. Now, just to recap there in the third Duma, so its duration, we've gone now from months now, finally into years. So its durations from November 1907 to June 1912, so that's four and a half years. Its representation, so the electoral system changed restricting franchise. So peasants of working classes could vote radically reduced, uh, only one in six able now to vote. 
As a result, the parties on the right dominated. So the Octoberists with 154, the rightists with 147, so a total of 441 seats then to the right. The Gets have been cut down to 54, the National Parties to 26, and the Trigovics to 14. Its main events and achievements, so relations with the government were more harmonious now that Doom was based towards the right, but in no means was it uh, servile. So Stolpen was able to work with it and put through his land reform, although he faced a lot of opposition. A law on universal education was passed, aiming at a minimum of four years compulsory primary school education. Steps were taken to modernise the army, just as those of the peace were restored, replacing the heated land captains, and the Duma developed a progressive national health insurance scheme for workers to cover sickness as well as accidents. For the fourth Duma then, its duration is from November 1912 to August 1914. Then it's suspended, but it also meets in 1915 and 1916. Its representation is very similar to that of the Third Duma, so the idea that we have more of a centralised base here on the right. So its main events and achievements, so there's a period of some tension as Helena Goldfield's massacre heralded some industrial unrest and strikes. Some reform of the Orthodox Church reducing state control and broadening education in church schools. Progress in education, supporting the 1908 law which also provided for universal education and increased spending on teachers' salaries. And there's discussion on the health of people and the ways to reduce uh, drunkenness in particular. So just a wee summary there. So Nicholas had shown that he was never really willing to work or listen to the Duma. He looked for excuses to close down sessions. He was only concerned with preserving the autocracy lodge because he believed it would be the better way of running Russia. And you have to remember, this is something that his tutors, this is something that his father and now his wife is advocating as well. It's the idea that autocracy is just the Russian way. He did not accept the democratic government could be effective and he did not understand by passing some of his own responsibilities onto an elected assembly. He could avoid the criticism and hostility directed towards him from various sections of Russian society. Not all the blame should be attached to the Tsar. The cadet's commands for the first Duma was very radical and not prepared to compromise or to be patient. As a result, the Duma degenerated into quarrels and bitter struggle between the Tsar and his supporters on the right, and the Liberals and the other parties on the left. This did not follow any relationship with trust and cooperation to develop. So we're just going to quickly look at how far did the economy change, uh, progress in industry, have a look at the workers in 1914 as well as the peasants, have a look at um, Stolpen's reforms and then we'll be leading into that of the First World War. So Stolpen saw his land reforms as a key way to transforming Russia into a stable and prosperous country. Peasants were allowed to leave the Mur, which is the commune, to consolidate their strips of land into a single unit and build a farmhouse on it. He called it a gamble not the drunken and feeble, but on the sober and the strong. A land bank was set up to be an independent peasant by land. Stolpen believed that the Mur, with its inadequate farming methods, paralysed personal initiative. Also making peasants into independent property owners and giving them full civil rights would take them a stake in the country and lead to becoming supporters of the regime. There were schemes to resettle peasants in Siberia, which had operated by the Trans-Siberian Railway Network. This was in order to use peasants to create new food growing areas. In the view of Abraham Asher, our historian, in his main study of Stolpen, is that it gave more time for implementation, that agrarian reforms may have contributed to a more modern revolution than the one of 1917. However, by 1914, only about 10% of households in European Russia lived on farms separated from the commune. 
Only a minority live in farms in the West European sense of a cottage and fields fenced off from their neighbours. Communal institutions remain strong, embodying the peasants' notions of social justice, and the mirror was represented by many peasants as a life jacket. Those who left the Stolfin separators were seen as traitors to the peasant tradition. The reform was more successful in the West, in the Ukraine and Belarusia, than in the other parts of Russia where reform was needed. Historian Judith Pallet argues that Stolfin's reform was in essence a utopian project and too narrowly conceived to create a loyal peasantry and to modernise peasant farming. There was alternatives which could have gone about, if not more, to increase peasant farm productivity. She points out that the commune was not always backward. New crop seeds, crop rotations and fertilisers were being employed in some gold communes. Also, some separators eager for a quick profit used poor farming methods that exhausted the soil. So basically here, what Stolfin has done, he's wanted to reform agriculture in order to modernise Russia and to make it a bit more competitive with European powers. He hopes that the organising land would increase support for the Tsar among unskilled farmhands. This reduced the threat of the socialist revolutionaries. And Stolfin believed that the key to success was to increase the number of peasant landowners, which resulted in a more invested peasantry. So no, he does change the redemption payments, the loans from the state were abolished, Loans for peasants to buy land became available with the introduction of the peasants' land banks. To merge the communities where the peasant farmers could no longer stop individuals from leaving to buy private land. MERS did not cooperate, were to be dissolved. Peasants were also given financial incentives to move to remote areas such as Siberia in an attempt to open up the countryside there. As a result of these uh, agrarian reforms, so agriculture output increased by a third, while peasant land ownership increased by 30%. The number of cadets increased dramatically, and they were increasingly then supportive to that of the Tsar. And that's something that Stolfin wants to do, the idea if you know, your life and your livelihood gets better, then you're going to be more supportive of that of the regime. So by 1914 then, just before we um, see the war start, the vast majority of agriculture production, in which was still an overwhelming agricultural country, was the responsibility of 20 million peasant households, most of whom were still organised in rural communes using the inefficient strip system. Helped by the loans from the state bank and the migration to new farms in Siberia, the amount of land held by the peasants increased, and by 1916, less than 10% of the stone area was directly cultivated as landowner estates. So there is a marked increase in agriculture production between 1909 to 1913, Although it could be argued it had nothing to do uh, with um, Sofan's reforms, more so to do with good weather. That potatoes, dairy products and sugar beets were being promoted and produced on the markets. That investment in agriculture machinery rose with an annual rate of 9% between 1891 and 1913. The over-concentration on grain production for export contributed to the failure of livestock to keep the pace of the population increase. Russia became the largest cereal exporter in the world, but per capita grain output remained below that of Germany and America. Grain production grew by 2.1% annually between 1883 and 1914, or that's by 1.1 million tonnes per year. So it kept ahead of the big 1.5% annual increase in the population. So in terms of the industry, what are we going to look at initiatives here? So throughout the whole of the period from the 1890 to 1914, the government was highly focused on producing ships, weapons and related materials. Historian P. Gattrell says that the industrial recovery was the byproduct of rearmament. This means that a coherent plan was developing different sectors for the economy, never materialised, so a more balanced economy was um, not created then. 
So after 1907, industrial production grew steadily at a rate around 6% per annum until 1914. Although this high rate was largely due to the fact it started from a low base, although well behind the major Western industrial powers, the achievements were impressive. By 1914, Russia was the world's fourth largest producer of coal, pig, iron and steel, and the Beko oil fields were only rivaled by Texas. Heavy industry was still the driving force. This was part large to the government's rearmament program with huge orders for metallurgical companies to build the Baltic fleet after the losses of the Russo-Japanese war, but also to restock with weapons generally. The downside of the focus on rearmament was the industry could not meet the demand for agricultural tools and machinery. Industrial development was still largely state-sponsored with companies dependent on government contracts. Foreign loans were still important, but less than they had been so before. In Russia, there was a growing interna- internal market and the production of consumer goods rose. Demand was coming from the peasants as the agricultural sector became more successful and price for farm produce increased. However, as a proportion of the total industry of production, the share of consumer goods fell from 52% to 45%. So there's going to be chemical and machine tool industries remained weak. So the goods were still being brought from abroad. Food processing supplied at a disproportionate amount, around 50% of total industrial production and one third of the entire factory labour force worked on the textile industry. There was large modern works with over 1,000 workers using the latest technology. According to a historian Alec Nove, 67% of industrial workers worked in these small-scale workshops, but they only produced 33% of the total industrial output, meaning that their productivity here, or productivity, was low. So in terms of the process here, so that we have a hope that agrarian reform would reduce demand for labour in the countryside, hence increasing urbanisation as people flooded into towns and cities looking for work. That heavy industry uh, increased considerably, the production of iron steel rose by 50% and the outbreak of World War One. Russia was the fourth largest producer of steel, coal and iron. There, in terms of preconditions, so the formation of trade unions have made legal in 1905. In 1912, you have safety inspectors were introduced into the factories. Workers began to benefit from employee insurance schemes, which provide protection against accidents and illnesses. However, the strike, as we'll come across shortly here, Galena Goldfields in 1912 emphasised that there was still a great deal of discontent and hundreds of protesters were killed by army and police. And it was still clear that there was opposition to that of the Tsarist state and it was on the increase here. So some historians consider the economy was stabilising and set to do well if the growth rates continued at the same pace. Alexander Gerkishin, a Russian-American economist, thought that the signs were so encouraging that if the First World War had not occurred, that Russia would be well on its way in developing into a successful modern industrial state. Others more pessimistic contend that despite her growth, Russia was still backward in many respects and falling behind more advanced industrial countries, especially in terms of production per head of the population. A third view is that the boom was likely to be short-lived and that Russia would face another crisis. Alec Nov, one of the highly regarded historians of the Russian economy, highlights that the uneven nature of Russian's industry and points out the question of whether Russia would become a modern industrial state if it not been for the war and revolution is, in essence, meaningless. It seems that the regime would not have proceeded on such an orderly path and adjusted to the strange of the changing society. Nov quotes Gershkov Freyam, Industrialization, the cost of which is largely defrayed by the peasantry, was itself a threat to political stability and hence to the continuation of the policy of industrialization. So, how revolutionary is Russia in 1914 here? 
So by 1914, the industrial workforce had established itself as a distinct section of the population. A majority of workers had begun employment between 1906 to 13, or the children of workers. The level of literacy among workers was high, reaching 64% in 1914, compared with less than 40% for the adult population in general. Things had not improved much for the most of them since 1905. They had seen very little reward for the growth in industrial production. Workers' wages were less than one-third the average in Western Europe, and the Russian government had no real attempt to improve their conditions in contrast to the social reforms enacted elsewhere in Europe. In 1912, limited insurance had been introduced for accidents and sickness, but covered only a minority of the workforce. People still had to work long hours for low pay. In some workplaces, their hours were actually being increased since 1905, and others had been put into piecework. For old age, occupation, disease and unemployment, there was little or no support. After 1905, the labour movement had retreated due to the repression of trade unions and strikes, but there was a rival of militancy from 1912. It started with Elena Goldfield's massacre in April 1912, striking workers protesting about degrading working conditions, low wages and 14-hour working day, clashed with troops and over 200 people were killed and many injured and this opened the floodgates to the workers' protests. Strikes grew in militancy between 1912 to 1914. In July 1914 saw a general strike in the St. Petersburg involving barricades and street fighting. However, only a quarter of the workforce were involved, compared to four-fifths in February 1917. Students whose relationship with the government had become increasingly embittered in the years leading up to 1914 supported the workers. The regime was right to be worried by industrial, by industrial and urban unrest, but was not likely to be toppled by 1914. Some historians argue that the workers in larger factories were turning towards the Bolsheviks who supported violent upheaval and armed struggle, but that is indicated in a similar situation in building up to 1905. However, historian R.B. McKean, in his study of St. Petersburg between the revolutions, workers and revolutionaries in June 1907 to February 1917, argues that most workers did not really work in large factories targeted by the socialists, but in domestic and service sectors. He maintains that most workers were not socialists and the strikes were mainly about pay, working conditions, only a relatively small number, predominantly male metal workers, were engaged in relative radical activity before 1917. In terms of the peasants, some historians contend that recent evidence suggests that living standards were rising amongst peasants in the years leading up to 1914. Several years of good harvests certainly helped. They point out the villages were relatively quiet before 1914 and militancy was to be found in the cities rather than the countryside. However, it's difficult to generalise about the standard of living for peasants because there's so much variation between and even with regions. It seems likely that while there was minority prospered, others remained impoverished. Although there was no major upheavals and disturbances, some historians have noted simmering resentment in the countryside. The divisive nature of Stolfin's reforms have shown the conflicts often enclosed between 1906 to 1914. In some instances, the separators faced violence and intimidation from the older entrenched peasants and troops had to be brought in to make sure that reforms went ahead. The peasants had not been tied closer to the Tsar as Stolfin had hoped. Their expectations of change had been dashed after 1905 as the growth of population only increased their hunger and land, particularly in the central agriculture providence. Their main aims have been not change, getting their hands on nobility land and farming, it's free from the government interference. Orlando Figg's research suggests that the landowners felt that the next and immediately more powerful revolutionary outburst by the peasantry would only be a question of time. 
So the peasants have left the land as a result of the form who had often been full of resentment and many have gone into the towns and cities to become industrial workers. Although thousands of peasants have been encouraged to go to Siberia returned home, having found the land inhospitable or had cheated by land speculators, they were also resentful. The net result was to increase the section of labour force was by ruthless and disorientated who provide good material for revolutionary propaganda. In terms of the Liberals, are they revolutionary? The Liberals were a weak and uncomfortable position sandwiched between the right who firmly support the autocracy and the radical workers and the peasants. Liberals were divided and no real threat. The Octoberists and the cadets who trusted each other were out of touch and the masses refused to seek their support. They feared mass anarchy and did not support the strike movement. They depended on the government to implement their programmes or they needed the Tsar more than they needed them. However, Gershkov, the October leader, told his followers in November 1913 that he was reminded of 1915 by the danger that had come from the government whose actions were revolutionary society and people. So the idea here, here's people like, like the October leader, you saying, no, actually the society here, the government and their actions are really the ones that are revolutionising that of society. He goes on to say, with every day people are losing faith, the state and the impossibility of the normal peaceful resolution of the crisis, the probable outcome of which is a sad, unavoidable catastrophe. The social revolutionaries and the Mensheviks both felt weakened in the years before 1914. The social revolutionaries were in turmoil after 1908 and the results of the exposure, especially as the party's terrorist wing was such prestige and that of the party. The social revolutionaries became obsessed with the issue of double agents and party organisation broke down. There were divisions among the leadership and between the leaders and the rank and file. The party was unable to take advantage of the revival of militancy after the Lena Goldfields massacre until the events of the Mensheviks with their emphasis on the creation of the legal labour movement taking advantage of the new political freedoms won in 1905 enjoyed more support inside Russia. Lena was a bow to any illusions about the regime and peaceful change and gave more radical Bolsheviks their opportunity. By 1914, the Bolsheviks had more influence in trade unions than the Mensheviks, gaining control of some biggest unions in St. Petersburg and Moscow, like the Metal Workers Union. The Bolshevik paper Prava and achieved a national circulation of 40,000 copies per issue, over twice that of the Menshevik rival. However, the workers were generally not housed in large factories, radicalised and under Bolshevik control as some Soviet historians claim them to be. Leadership was either in exile like Lenin or isolated abroad. Lenin had failed to build on a national illegal party organisation. Even in January 1917, Lenin said, We, the old people, perhaps won't survive the decisive battles of the forthcoming revolution. A huge problem for the Bolsheviks as well as the social revolutionaries is that they were thoroughly infiltrated by the Okara. How reliable then is the army? So the events of 1905 had shown the regime could survive if they could rely on the army and in 1914 the army remained loyal. However, historian Edward Acton points out that the experience of 1905-6, that the subsequent reforms helped weaken the reliability of the army as an instrument of control. The mutinies in 1905-1906 could not be forgotten. Caught in the period of service to three years brought the army into much closer contact with the stresses and strains of civilian society. Also, as the officer corps became more professional, it was more determined to be not to be used for crushing civil disobediences. So that there is our um, lesson on the period from 1906 to 1914 and is Russian stabilised. So we do see that there is some reforms that are taking place. Still elements here of dissatisfaction. 
I'm particularly, as you can see, that there is problems when it comes to that of the doom and note that as a result of the October Manifesto and the promise of constitutional monarchy, the new government structure was adopted that the Tsar remains as the head of the government, but is aided by three permanent political bodies. Like, you know, we've got the Council of Ministers, you're the most powerful. Uh, these are the Tsar's advisors, and they're elected and only answerable to him, and they create the law. The State Council was chosen by the Tsar and the Sevesta, and they approved the law created by the Council of Ministers. And then we have the Duma, which is voted by the male electorate. So there's two houses here that are more powerful compared that to the Duma itself. <coughs> Sorry. And then the fundamental laws that have been passed in April 1906 were an edict for from the Tsar that they confirmed the October Manifesto but also asserted the powers of the Tsar over the Duma. And these do state that the right to rule independently of the Duma when it was not in session, the right to dissolve close the Duma at any point, the power to change the electoral system, power to appoint ministers he wanted in the council, and sole commander of the army and the navy giving him military power to crush any uprising. So, in essence here, there could have been so much change that could have been achieved in the Duma, but as you know, you could see with the swappings between the right and the left, and then how we have the cadet number is cut down, so there's always going to be a domination here from the right. But there's been so many misjudged errors here of judgment, and we're going to see these then really come to light when it comes to that of the Great War, which will be our next lesson.